I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit explicit warning. It's Wednesday, February 10th, 2021 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, I called Congressman Joe Neguse. Joe Neguse? Sorry, I misgandered him. Neguse was there today. As he and the other impeachment managers in his flock were each better than the last, they offered necessary legal arguments. They cited compelling reasons to convict. They played tape that was hard to look away from. And these reasons weren't just compelling to you and me, assuming you're not Donald Trump Jr., or as I call him, the variant, but compelling, possibly compelling, to the actual jury. So yesterday, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana switched his vote from the week prior and said it was constitutional to possibly disqualify an ex-president through this trial. Because, well, of course it is. But also because, and this was Cassidy's reasoning, Trump's lawyers performed so badly. Now, let's just concede this. It was a horrible performance, but that doesn't change the constitutionality question. However, senators are human and impeachment is political, and there is no way to record your disgust by giving Castor and Schoen one and a half stars on Yelp or by penning a scathing theater review. So you reach for the only outlet you have, the vote, which isn't to say that Cassidy will ultimately be a vote of conviction, but it could argue that other senators might just change their minds. And the House managers were playing on this. Yesterday, in the harrowing video of the attack, extra attention was given to the violence the rioters did to police officers. And several clips featured not just the pictures of police under duress being attacked, being in one case is almost choked out, but the words of rioters insulting the police, cursing at the police, sometimes while waving a Blue Lives Matter flag, being violent and horrible and insulting towards the police. There are a lot of things the rioters said, but I think the Democratic impeachment managers specifically emphasized anti-police violence because that speaks more to Republicans. Also in this line of argumentation, Jamie Raskin, impeachment manager, reminded the senators that legal experts thought that Trump's case was, well, pretty horrible. Last week, 144 constitutional scholars, including Floyd Abrams, a ferocious defender of free speech, Charles Freed, President Reagan's Solicitor General, Stephen Calabresi, the co-founder of the Federalist Society, released a statement calling the President's First Amendment arguments legally frivolous. Legally frivolous. But the specific lawyers cited were Federalist Society members, in fact, the head of the Federalist Society, and Republican Lawyer of the Year Chuck Cooper. I checked. That award actually happened. It's not a Trump Michigan Man of the Year type situation. And then Representative Joaquin Castro made this argument. Now, all of us in this room have run for election, and it's no fun to lose. I'm a Texas Democrat. We've lost a few elections over the years. But can you imagine telling your supporters that the only way you could possibly lose is if an American election was rigged and stolen from you? And ask yourself whether you've ever seen anyone at any level of government make the same claim about their own election. So listen to what he did there. Ask yourself, can you imagine 
This is an undeniable prompt. We as humans, when we hear that, we have to engage. We do imagine. And the stakes get higher because if you say, can you imagine, and then present a scenario where the listener can in fact imagine it, it backfires, right? So if Castro were to say, can you imagine how a president could say such things? There are many senators who would say, yeah, I can imagine how he was exaggerating, he didn't mean it, or he's a terrible guy, but he didn't know it would go that far. You could imagine that. But what he asked them to imagine is a situation that they couldn't imagine because this was a select group of people who've run for election. And when asked to imagine, could you, could you, would you tell your voters, your voters, not the other people, would you tell your voters beforehand, the only way we're going to lose is fraud. That's the only explanation. I would say that everyone in that room, including Cruz and Hawley, did say to themselves in that moment, they can't imagine doing that. Because usually what we do is when we see someone accused and they are in our party or in our circle, or we have some interests aligned with them or affinity for them, we put ourselves in their shoes and we say, imagine if these charges were leveled at me. Trump's lawyers know this. This is why they say, you know, if we start illegalizing speech here, imagine if they come and try to illegalize your speech. Imagine if they come for you next, there but for the grace of God. That's the sort of imagining we do. But the argument that Castro put forward makes the jurors say, you know what? I wouldn't do that. In fact, the argument Castro put forward might even serve to rebut Trump's argument. You know, first they're going to come for Trump. Who's next? Because the answer stops at, well, it won't be me because I wouldn't do that horrible thing that Trump did. Later on, the Democratic managers showed tweets where Trump tagged senators, Republican senators, McConnell, Cornyn, Thune, again, personalizing it, talking to senators. Hey, ask yourself, what if you're next? And applying the thought, what if I'm next, not to what if I'm the next target of Democratic impeachment, but what if I'm the next target of the Trump mob? I didn't see much of this kind of tactic in the first impeachment. It's not the fault of Schiff, Nadler, and the impeachment managers in that case. The facts didn't really fit that argument. But they do here, and it's powerful stuff. Don't convict Trump to defend the flag or America or this institution or the abstract idea of democracy. Convict him to defend yourselves. I think it's a long shot given the makeup of the jury, but I am impressed with the effort so far. On the show today, okay, we heard from the prosecution. We're going to hear more from them, hours more tomorrow. But let's remember what the rebuttal will be, and let's pre-butt it. But first, speaking of nationalist, extremist, violent domestic terrorists, well, here's the thing. We are speaking of them. We are speaking of domestic terrorism. Domestic terrorists were clearly crawling through the Capitol a month ago. But we can't prosecute them as such, U.S. law enforcement has had its hands tied to some extent because there is no domestic terrorism statute. Do we need one? Can we refrain from taking it too far? Frank Figluzzi, 25-year FBI veteran and MSNBC analyst, is here to talk about this, to talk about his new book, The FBI Way, to answer if the Bureau was distracted by Trump's obsession with Antifa and how cops could possibly throw in with the rioters, and a lot more. Frank, 
Figluzzi was the former FBI assistant director. You know him from MSNBC, where he is on more and more often, which is just a sign that our society, sadly enough, needs his expertise more and more often. His new book is called The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Frank, thanks for coming on The Gist. Mike, I'm glad we could do it. Thanks for inviting me. I have seen and heard you advocate for a domestic terrorism law, a statute where people can be prosecuted for the crime of domestic terrorism. Right now, people who commit acts, illegal acts, can be committed for those acts. But unlike international terrorism, there's no overweening law. What benefit would that have to the safety of America were such a law to be enacted? We don't have a law in the books that reflects the gravity of, of the kind of thing that happened on January 6th. You, you're seeing arrests now of those who perpetrated the, the insurrection for things like assault, theft of Nancy Pelosi's podium, her laptop, even assault on a federal officer, uh, which is quite serious. But none of those charges, and, and, and even as we get into conspiracy charges, which we're, we're now thankfully beginning to see, they're conspiracy to do what? Conspiracy to trespass, to violate the security of the Capitol. These don't reflect the gravity of what this is. And it's time to call it what it is. It's domestic terrorism. And the average person on the street, Mike, if you were to stop them and say, hey, um, is it against the law to be a domestic terrorist? You'd likely hear them say, well, of course it is. There must be a law against it. But there is not. And there is on the international terrorism side. So if you were to change the religion of those people flooding into the capital, let's say change it to Islam, let's say change their mission to violent jihad, and let's say they're associated with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, suddenly two things would have happened. One, for being caught doing it, they would go away for a terrorism violation of 20 years to life, maybe even get executed for the death, say, of that police officer. And even more interestingly, it may never have happened in the first place because if they're part of a terrorist group or plan, the FBI would have the ability to get in out in front of it, undercover agents in their chat rooms, wiretaps ordered by the courts, et cetera. So there's a reason why we haven't had a major act of terrorism since 9-11. It's because the law works, the tools are there. They're not in domestic terrorism. Now we can go into other areas in the prevention mode, if, if you'd like. Yeah, I think so, because I think I'm not <clears throat> I'm not opposed to this. I'm not knee jerk. Uh, and I hope most of my listeners aren't. They have an open mind. So I think the better case you could make or one could make saying that here are steps we could take that we could all agree to prevent an international terrorist incident. If we can't take those steps to present a domestic terror terrorist incident, something's wrong. So give me an example of that. If we actually have a domestic terrorism law, it gets agents inside these groups earlier and earlier in the process. So right now, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, don't we have laws, uh, murder, violence uh, that, that can be used? Yes, but look at what we just said. We have laws about murder and violence. It has to happen or nearly happen. I give a very simple example from my career. We had a, a bank robbery case where the bank robber's girlfriend told us, he was, a, he was a known suspected bank robber. She came to us and said, he's going to rob a bank this week. And we went to the prosecutor and said, we got to take this guy down. And the prosecutor said, you've got to get him in the act. 
You got to get him in the act. So we surveilled him all week. And sure enough, he's casing banks, casing banks. He's getting his comms ready. He's getting his weapons ready. We get him in the parking lot of the bank he's about to rob. And it's a, it's a horrible shootout and he ends up dying. Okay. Here's my point. Why, why do we have to do that with domestic terrorism when we have to virtually wait for the act to occur and we don't have to for international terrorism? So I talk about the El Paso Walmart shooter, that he was in a chat room, Mike, talking about shooting up the brown invaders, using the same language Trump has used, right? But, but there's, no, there's nobody, there's no FBI presence in that chat room, and we have to wait for him to do it practically, and, and that's, that's where it comes in. So people who go, well, he's going he's gonna to be executed in Texas. Yeah, but he killed everybody at the Walmart. So let's, let's, let's be able to get in earlier because it's, a, it's the rubric of domestic terror that gets us into the investigation early enough. So with, we need to kill the brown invaders, you know, that statement without a domestic yeah. terrorism law is, look, there's nothing I could do, but with a terrorism law, it's like, well, that's domestic terrorism. We're going to go. Well, here's the thing. At least, you ne- at least show up on his doorstep. Well, here, here's the here's the fallacy. So that statement, I, I think I'm going to shoot up the brown invaders. That absolutely would be actionable by law enforcement. But who's there to see it? So in the, in the case of the let, let's go to that case where the militia group tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan, okay. uh, Governor Whitmer. OK, do you know how that case started? One of the members of the militia group got frightened when these these other knuckleheads said, you know, I think we're going to kill some cops and kidnap the governor. And he came forward to law enforcement and said, "Uh, this is scaring even me. And so if you if we want a situation where we're relying on bad guys to rat out other bad guys, I say that's not very, uh, very optimal. Mm -hmm. We could be much more proactive. I got it. Now, is there has the FBI's hands been tied in the past about right wing groups or is there some element that right-wing groups weren't taken as seriously as international terrorism? And I understand. It's, it's understandable. After 9-11, we have to totally be on the watch out for this element that killed 3,000 of our fellow citizens and remade America. So are you saying that uh, but for the law, there would be as much interest and knowledge that right-wing groups are dangerous, that that would be a sentiment within law enforcement? Well, not not for me. I think it would be naive. I think it would be naive of any credible law enforcement professional to say, yeah, the magic elixir would be to have the law. And then all of our racism and all of our all of our kind of uh, inherent tendencies to trust people who look like us, all of that will magically go away. No, it, it won't. But I say this, the law would take a huge step in that direction. Um, the the notion that uh, law enforcement historically has seen people who look different, talk different, worship differently as a greater threat uh, is a reality. There's no way around it. But talking about tying hands, it would it would tell a law would tell law enforcement, hey, uh, you have no choice now. If this definition is met of domestic terrorism, this law applies knock yourself out. And I don't want to hear anymore about how these are good old boys who drink beer on the weekends. And, and so I think it would help in, in that regard tremendously. Um, but I, I, I also think that we've got to understand 
that this is now the number one threat facing this country. The FBI director twice testified on Capitol Hill that domestic terror and even more specifically, hate-based white hate terror is the predominant threat. And when the FBI agents association, the rank and file men and women of the FBI, write a letter to Congress, as they did a year ago, saying to Congress, please help us. We don't have what we need to battle this new threat. We should pay attention to that. Yeah. Let me ask you about the attitude of FBI agents uh, as a whole. After 9-11, the FBI, you know, so many agents volunteered, came in from the field, say, said, this is what I need to work on. We had our, uh, you know, fellow agents, our brothers and sisters who died in that attack. I mean, it was really like, uh, an from my reading of it, it was... After Pearl Harbor, I mean, you you couldn't get more unanimity of support that this was the enemy we have to face. Is there that great an appetite within the FBI to go after right-wing extremists down the line? There's, it's really important to, and it's not just semantics, it's really important to keep using the word violence on this. So when we say right-wing extremism, you'll never hear me say that without the word violence, because FBI agents are about preventing violence. If you say, is there a will within the Bureau to go after violent extremists? You you bet. You, you bet. They see the threat now every day. They're, the people they're rounding up right now that were in the insurrection, these are, these are, you know, the searches of their homes are indicating incredible amounts of weaponry, planning, um, anti-government. In fact, these are high risk arrests. I mean, you go, you figure, oh, I'm going to go knock on the door and handcuff some guy who trespassed into the Capitol. Let me assure you, that's a tactical arrest. These people are armed for bear and they don't like law enforcement. The New York Times had a uh, fairly well-reported story the other day, how Trump's focus on Antifa distracted attention from the far right threat. To what extent did that happen? There's no question that then Attorney General Bill Barr Um, appears to have pressured the FBI um, and even in his public statements to, you know, let's let's ensure that we're getting those uh, left wingers, you know, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and let's spend some time making sure we we wrap them up. I think that did impact FBI resources. Um, But let's not forget the stand up uh, performance of Christopher Wray, the FBI director, who went on the Hill and incurred the wrath of President Trump when he said, quote, Antifa is more of an ideology, unquote. So this notion that people carry around Antifa ID cards, that there's some president and CEO and the home office in Peoria, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so, and, and the, F, the average FBI agent and intelligence analyst knows, yeah, okay, this is all malarkey. When we when you say that it did distract a little bit, just in terms of the specific agents tasked with looking at Antifa aren't looking at other things, or was there? Yeah, I yes, yeah. yes, I have reason to believe that resources, not a lot, but resources were forced to be dedicated to quote unquote uh, this Antifa thing, yeah. and you know those resources could have gone to actually known violent groups and individuals. Now that Barr and Trump are gone, is the FBI, whatever concern there was at looking at Antifa rather than right-wing violent extremists, is that, has that gone away too? Yeah, here's what's gone away. 
by by all accounts that I'm getting, the the political intervention into the daily work of the FBI and the Department of Justice has gone away. Credibly and demonstrably, there were members in that crowd of seditionists, of insurrectionists who who are law enforcement, and the um, investigation have shown that some small number, but number of National Guards, troop or military were sympathetic, perhaps, to right-wing extremism. I haven't heard that much with the FBI. In fact, I haven't heard that at all. There are some explanations to get into the FBI. You have to be vetted. Do you worry at all that there is an element in the FBI who's actually sympathetic in some way to the politics writ large of the insurrectionists? It's a great question. And I would be naive to say to you, oh no, that's not going to happen. We're, we're not going to get. We're not going to wake up one morning and find out some FBI agent or retired agent's been arrested for something like that. The law enforcement is not a monolith. As polarized as our society is, they reflect our society as well. And yes, the good news, and I write about this extensively in my book, not to shamelessly plug my book, The FBI Way, but I spend a great deal of time. My book is about protecting the core values of your organization the way that the FBI does it from my time in in internal affairs at the FBI. But here's the deal. Um, Yes, the risk, the FBI mitigates that kind of risk every day um, by, you know, who they recruit in, as you referred to, then then ingraining the core values and, and vetting and checking. Do you know every single FBI employee, agent or or not, is reinvestigated like from scratch all over again, every five years, polygraphs, neighborhoods, everything. And including, by the way, social media analysis, which is where you pick up signs of radicalization. But we would be silly to think that there aren't a couple of employees or agents out there or retired who are sitting at home going, I'm for Trump. I like this law and order. I'm I'm buying into that. Yeah, it, it could happen. So the personal issue of mine that I was appalled by, and I don't think got as much attention, I want your opinion on it. The National PBA, the Union for Police, endorsed Trump. I found it so improper for the National PBA to endorse a candidate, let alone Donald Trump, but really a candidate. It puts them and the rank and file in a terrible position and sends a terrible message What's your opinion of that? Would it, or maybe um, I could ask you, had there been a similar endorsement from the FBI, would that be wrong? Oh, oh, short answer, yes, it would be horribly wrong. The FBI has to remain a neutral, objective organization in order to succeed in its mission. And in fact, the FBI director has a deliberate 10-year term so that he or she can straddle administrations and not be subject to the political whims of a new president. You've already heard Biden say, thank God, he's going to honor that 10-year term and keep Chris Ray on, who has six more years. Chris Ray was appointed by by Trump. But that's the import, that's the importance of the apolitical objective FBI. And I write about in my book how Jim Comey actually hurt the FBI's image and caused many Americans to think that the FBI might have become political. It's the worst thing that can happen. But, you know, but, I yeah, let me about, ask you and say it right, because yeah. I think I misidentified the group. It's not the PBA. It's the Fraternal Order of the Police. That's the national organization. Yeah, it's, not, it's, what it's horrible. It's horrible, Mike. And let, let, let me I think not enough attention has been paid. And yeah, I, I can't I can't believe well, they did it. 
Let, let me let me give you an even worse example. Well, it, or similar example. The the U.S. So here's a federal law enforcement agency, the U.S. Border Patrol Union, and they are unionized, yeah, which is yeah. another another problem. I don't believe in that. But they not only endorsed Trump, but they showed up. All the regional union heads for Border Patrol were in the Rose Garden cheering Trump on when he accepted the nomination uh, for president. And and these are the guys at the border who want to thump heads and feel like, you know, Trump had their back when telling them to do whatever they needed to do with uh, with uh, migrants. It's horrible. So here's the last thing I want to talk about. I think you would agree that this problem that we have of violent right wing extremists will we, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. We can't charge people with crimes and that will suppress it. It's an ideology and there are lots of ways to combat an ideology, but mostly it's with ideas. But my question is, what to what extent will effective law enforcement hinder their growth? This is not, there's no single law enforcement solution to the problem of radicalization. We've learned that on the international side. And what we've seen over the last four years is a kind of radicalization process that's going to require all hands on deck societally, holistically, business, big tech, educators. Boy, do we need civics lessons on what democracy really is, right? And how to consume intelligently, consume your news and your information. This has to happen throughout society. Biden's got a de-radicalization problem on his hands. Law enforcement is only a small slice of this. And to, to show you the, the complicated decision-making that has to go on, you, you can see uh, big tech moving away from providing apps for places like Parler, right? And censoring and taking down the president from Facebook and, and Twitter. Okay, all good, but understand it's a two-edged sword. You may force the violent extremists into the darkest recesses of the internet, and they get into this amplification echo chamber where all they hear are themselves with no exposure to sunlight and no one to say to Uncle Joe, hey, Joe, uh, Uncle Joe, uh, you're nuts. Stop talking like that, right? Because now they're inside an encrypted app. We're seeing a migration to encrypted platforms. So this is a complicated program, and it's not just all about law. law enforcement. Can If we get a domestic terrorism law, they might be able to prevent some of this. But until that happens, law enforcement's just cleaning up the wreckage. The name of the book is The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Its author is 25-year FBI veteran Frank Figluzzi. Thanks so much, Frank. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. And now the spiel. I'm going to slap you, then punch you, then stab you, but then hug and high-five you, and finally I'll push you out a window and not the ground floor. So is that a threat? Did I just threaten you? I would say that is a threat. I think you'd say that too. But what about that part? Can we replay the tape there? (laughs) Then hug and high-five you. Yeah. How much mitigation does that phrase do? I would say, I'm going to ballpark this, none, none at all. But that's most of the Trump defense. The Trump defense team, such as they are, are engaged in the argument, such as it is, that Donald Trump wasn't really engaging in incitement that day. It's not all of their argument. It's a large part of their argument. And not the entirety of their argument, oh, it was an incitement, but a large part of their argument was, yes, 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 he said some of those things, those bad things, but also, sprinkled in there, he said some of the nice things 
Not the fight like hell, not the, or you're not going to have the country anymore, not the... When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. Not the, you have to show strength, you have to be strong, but he did use a version of the word peace at one point in his speech. The defense is, yeah, 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 but what about the things he said that weren't a threat? Well, what about my little non-threat in the beginning of the show? That will one day be referred to in impeachment proceedings as, and then on February 10th, Mr. Pesca in his spiel threatened bodily harm, punching, stabbing, and ultimately defenestration. How does that take away the threat? A string of threats plus a few non-threats, it doesn't work like multiplying negative numbers. We're all cool. It works like, well, other crimes. John Wayne Gacy killed 33 people, but think of all the people he never killed. He was arrested at the age of 36, which means for every day he killed a person, there were 400 days of his life that he didn't. Can we hear some testimony about those days? Uh, We'll skip to ones where he planned the murders or moved the bodies, but still, it's a pretty big ratio. The Trump uninsightful defense, meaning the defense that Trump was being uninsightful on January 6th, could just, if they really want to shoot the moon and talk about all the non-threatening things Trump say, could play long stretches of the speech that in no way had anything to do with insurrection. I've watched this whole speech. Have you? No good. We all need our mental health. But this speech does not fall outside the classic Trump oeuvre of free-floating, aggrieved, spoil sport. Take this part. I had to beat Stacey Abrams. And I had to beat Oprah, used to be a friend of mine. You know, I was on her last show, or last week. She picked the five outstanding people. I don't think she thinks that anymore. Once I ran for president, I didn't notice there were too many calls coming in from Oprah. Believe it or not, she used to like me, but I was one of the five outstanding people. How is that incitement? Ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, this isn't a man who wants to dismantle democracy, and maybe you in the process. This is a man who wants to be one of Oprah's favorite things. And is that so wrong? You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. But does the forgotten man, the American patriot, does he get a car? And that's really what's on trial here. Now, I have to ask, just an aside. Did any of you, members of the jury, senators, did you find my argument disjointed, unconvincing, hard to follow, not at all inspiring? Exactly. And that's what my client was doing that day, too. It's just that his people showed up all ready to ruckus. Oh, yeah. By the way, this is another part of the defense. Big part. They, they have eight hours. You're going to hear this. Think about, think about what I'm about to say, because otherwise it's very tempting to fall into their iron trap of logic. But they are going to say that Trump didn't cause the riot. I know they're going to say this. Rudy Giuliani says this. They mentioned this on the first day. Trump didn't cause the riot. And the proof is those people showed up ready to riot. They were an angry mob to begin with. Zip-tie dude didn't stop to gear up along Pennsylvania Avenue after that speech. Well, what about that? Today, the impeachment managers addressed that to some extent. They showed all the things that Trump did to make them angry and all the lies that he tried to get them to believe. But what about the idea that this mob showed up as an angry mob independent of Trump's words that day? Well, what about that? Well, think about this. Think of every image that you can conjure in your mind of the angry mob, the classic angry mob from an old movie. And what do you see? You see a teeming horde wielding pitchforks and torches 
and some guy shows up with a hoe. I don't know why they always show up with a hoe. But guess what? Those guys showed up with their pitchfork too. And then someone says, hey, all you be pitchforked individuals, check out this great idea. Hark! A riot is an ugly thing. Hark! I think that it is just about time that we had one! That's what happened in Young Frankenstein. A riot is an ugly thing. Or this one from a beloved Disney film. A beast will make off with your children. He'll come after them in the night. We're not safe till his head is mounted on my wall. I say we kill the beast! All those people, cartoon and otherwise, came armed with their pitchforks, torches, and hoes. Always the non-lethal gardening equipment mixed in. But the presence of farming implements at the rally doesn't mean that the guy who stands in front of the crowd and urges them on isn't inciting them. Donald Trump clearly, maybe not legally, by the letter of the law, but in normal human ways is documented in our imaginations and what we think of as a riot and causing a riot and inciting a riot. He was in practice responsible to a large degree of incitement. And Trump has no answer for this. Well, other than the fact that the senators will probably acquit him, given their makeup. I mean, it's as if Gaston from Beauty and the Beast were tried by a jury of every other square-jawed, V-torso Disney hero. Actually, thinking of it, maybe Trump has one chance. And that is to distance himself from the attempted coup by attempting to coup. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down... We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol. So it's time to take some action, boys. It's time to follow me. Whoops. He just quit the Screen Actors Guild. Even that won't fly. And that's it for today's show. Shayna Roth produces The Gist. She's 100% non-murdering. All of her days have spent not murdering. Good for society. But it does make the computation of murdering days versus non-murdering days impossible. Zero is a denominator. Margaret Kelly, Gist producer, always predicted that if there were a Beauty and the Beast song for Donald Trump, it might be Be Our Guest, but it'd probably be the title track, what with, you know, the marriages and all. Guy's still a wild card. Always surprising us. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She believes the crowd at the rally really did come prepared to riot, but in that situation, ACDC rules do not apply. For those about to riot, we should not salute you. The gist. I'm glad everyone recognized that Congressman Nagoose is masterful and that lawyer Bruce Castor isn't. Like they say, it's good for Nagoose, but bad to meander. Umpur Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.